Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Botte in Washington. Today is Thursday, December 8th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. African leaders come to Washington, D.C. next week for the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit. African leaders now are firmly convinced that the path out of underdevelopment for African countries is trade and investment and trade and investment deals have to be negotiated. Drought keeps thousands of Kenyan children out of school. A new investigative report says South Sudan's National Security Service has extensive business operations throughout the country. Meanwhile, South Sudan's ruling party endorses President Salva Kiir as its candidate in the 2024 presidential election. The external political bill decided to nominate Comrade Salva Kiir Mayadi as the sole candidate and consequently the presidential flag bearer in the national elections. And Cameroon hands over road construction to the military following separatist attacks and abductions. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. A spokesperson for Malawi President Lasro Chakwera says next week's U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit will provide a platform for the continent's leaders to express their views on how U.S.-Africa trade should progress, particularly in the context of the Africa Continental Free Trade Area. Sean Campodeni, Director of Communications for President Chakwera, says African leaders are convinced that the path out of underdevelopment is trade and investment that are mutually negotiated and not dictated. President Joe Biden will host African leaders from December 13 to the 15th. The State Department says the summit will build on shared values to better foster new economic engagement, advance peace and security, good governance, and reinforce a mutual commitment to democracy, human rights, and civil society. Campo Denin tells me that there is a consensus among African leaders that development cannot happen with aid alone, but rather through trade and investment. There is a huge interest uh, among African leaders to uh, explore markets for African products as well as explore investors from various markets into the African continent. And so this is a great opportunity and platform, this summit that Mr. Biden is hosting that allows African leaders to uh, express their interests with regard to how they want trade between Africa and the United States to progress going forward in the context of the African continental free trade area. In the past, there had been some conditions for those trade relations. Are those of concern to some African countries? Are they hoping that some of these uh, restrictions can be at least adjusted? Absolutely. Uh, There is uh, a huge imbalance in terms of uh, the trade uh, exchange between Africa, not just the United States, but also Africa and Europe. Africa and Asia, Africa and South America. And so this is an imbalance that uh, African leaders want to see corrected in order for Africa to develop. There is a general consensus among African leaders that that is not going to happen anymore through aid because this is a model that has been tried and tested and has been found wanting. And so African leaders now are firmly convinced that the path out of poverty for African people, the path out of underdevelopment for African countries is trade and investment. And trade and investment deals have to be negotiated. They cannot be dictated, nor can they be demanded in a one-sided fashion. 
And Sean, this summit is coming at the time when the world economy is strained, particularly African countries are being impacted the most. And your country, people have been complaining about difficulties and uh, hard times. So what kind of help do you expect from the summit? In fact, uh, that's precisely the point uh, regarding the summit. This is a summit that is a departure from the entire model of Africans going to international fora in order to seek help. African leaders are not going to this summit expecting help or seeking help. They are going to this summit in order to negotiate trade deals and investment opportunities. Trade deals and investment opportunities by their very nature are win-win scenarios rather than someone going to another country begging for help because they are desperate or because uh, they are in dire straits. Now, admittedly, Africa does have many, many different challenges. We feel those uh, challenges even uh, in Malawi, where President Chakwera is traveling from to attend this summit. Uh, Some of those challenges include the uh, knock-on effect of the geopolitical situation in Eastern Europe between Russia and Ukraine that has affected the supply chain with regard to fuel and fertilizers and wheat. And this has set uh, prices for basic commodities across Africa skyrocketing. The same thing can be said about the knock-on effect of climate change. So those are the sort of four where African leaders can talk about various kinds of help. But this summit is not about Africa seeking help. It's Africa seeking opportunities that are mutually beneficial between African countries and the United States. Because when you're making an investment, you do it because you believe there is going to be a return on your investment. But African leaders, especially the Malawian president who is traveling uh, to represent Malawi's interests, is doing this in order to negotiate on an equal footing for a stake in the investment flows that are coming from the United States. Sean, thank you very much again. And once again, welcome to Washington, D.C. Thank you, James. Sean is Director of Communications for Malawi's President Lastro Chakwera. He was speaking with me here in Washington, D.C. Tomorrow, Friday, Sean will discuss Malawi's domestic matters from the fight against corruption to opposition protests that President Chakwera has not done enough to deal with the high cost of living. The South Sudan People's Liberation Movement has endorsed President Salva Kiir as its presidential flag bearer in the country's general elections expected in late 2024. The announcement came at the end of a three-day meeting of the party's law-making organ, the National Liberation Council. President Kiir welcomed the decision and pledged to work to unite and develop the country. For VOA News, Wake Simon Wudu reports from Juba. The SDM Political Bureau decided to nominate Comrade Salfakir Mayadit as the sole candidate for the position of chairman of SPLM during the third SPLM National Convention and consequently the presidential flag bearer in the national elections at the end of the transitional period. That is Akal Paul Kordit, the SPLM's first Deputy Secretary General for Political Affairs an organization announcing the National Liberation Council's nomination of President Kiir as the party's presidential candidate for the general elections. The elections are to be held at the end of the transitional period in late 2024. This is a collective decision of the SPLM Political Bureau that tells you 
We have no candidate, none other than our chairman in the political bureau. Party members welcome to the announcement with a standing ovation. Eastern Equatorial State Governor Luis Lobonglo Jore seconded the endorsement on behalf of the Equatorial region. I would like to raise emotions of secondment of what the National Political Bureau decided to nominate Comrade Salva Mayadi as the black bearer for the coming general election. Giving his acceptance speech, Mr. Kir happily welcomed his endorsement as the SPLM's flag bearer. I accept your nomination. I am humbled and honored by your decision to nominate me for these two important tasks. That is to be the only sole candidate in the forthcoming convention and becomes also the flag bearer for the SPLM party in the general election. Among the resolutions passed during the meeting, the NLC said the Arusha agreement reached among the factions of the SPLM in Tanzania in 2015 has been completely implemented. Another resolution approved the key documents of the party on financial management and a code of conduct and a discipline. The party also established 11 national committees to strengthen its governance policies. The National Liberation Council also called on breakaway parties, including the SPLMIO, to relinquish the acronym SPLM and leave it with the mother party, the faction Kir leads. Cordit warns that the SPLM could take the SPLMIO, which Riakmachar leads, and other parties to court if they continue to use the acronym. In closing the NLC meeting, President Kerr pledged to stabilize the country and called on the South Sudanese people to work harder to build the country. All of us, if we unite, all of us, if we unite, we live fighting among ourselves and we work together. I believe we will be great people. South Sudan is due to hold its first elections in late 2024, according to the new roadmap for implementing the 2018 Revitalized Peace Agreement. For VON News, I'm working Simon Wudu in Juba. A new investigative report by the Centuries, South Sudan's National Security Service, the NSS, has established control over the country through extensive business operations spanning the oil, financial, and media sectors and using surveillance, repression, and extreme brutality. The report documents more than 120 companies in which powerful NSS personnel hold shares and enjoy regional and international connections. Century Researcher Lali Ackman says the government of South Sudan should close all NSS detention centers and investigate allegations of torture and sexual violence. She tells Nabil Biajo the U.S. and international actors, as well as financial institutions, must also identify accounts held by NSS personnel and target them for sanctions. We came away with a vast network of companies with NSS shareholders across key sectors um, ranging from media, logistics, natural resources, to publishing, um, export, import, etc. And what our investigation revealed is that the NSS in South Sudan uses a two-pronged strategy 
of state capture and repression to maintain the status quo. The NSS was established in 2011 as an advisory and information gathering agency. Uh, but you seem to suggest that it has overstepped its role and its mandate. Uh, please explain that. I think it's really a question of who is being surveilled. When it's threats to security that are being surveilled, that's one thing. But the NSS does take it a step too far because the NSS surveils civilians, journalists, and civil society actors. And when you begin to surveil people who are key to your democracy functioning, you're definitely an obstacle to peace in your country. You named individuals and business entities that are key actors which drive and serve the work of the NSS in South Sudan. Uh, let's highlight some of them and their roles. Right. So in the report, we took a talk, of course, about Nicole Korkuch, the Director General of the Internal Security Bureau. We took a talk about Akot Lalaretch, who is a close associate of Salva Kiir. We talk about Jalpan Obaij, who's a legal director for the NSS. And these are all fairly senior, not only in the NSS, but also just generally in the politicking in South Sudan. But there are a number of other people that we name as well. There's Napoleon Adokai, who is an NSS official, who also is involved in the Ministry of Communications. There is um, Erjok Bullen, who's an NSS official, but was the interim director of the National Revenue Authority. And so in the report, we really try to show how NSS officials are incredibly powerful, not just in the security state, but also in every aspect of South Sudanese life. Uh, NSS's expansive role, as you say in your report, uh, includes media repression and controlling narratives. Uh, please elaborate on that part. So they do that in a couple of ways. Firstly, journalists in South Sudan really aren't able to operate freely. They live in constant fear of the NSS. The NSS's involvement with journalists ranges from small things like confiscating their recording devices and stopping them from reporting on specific happenings. But it also gets pretty extreme in that journalists are often harassed and intimidated. They're often just picked up and detained for an indefinite period of time without any understanding why they're being detained or fair trial. And in this type of environment, when journalists not only aren't able to do their job, but are also worried about their personal well-being and their families, you really don't have a space in which free press can operate freely and in a way that supports democracy. They also have a pretty big footprint in the media sector, in your recommendations, you have a message for the government of South Sudan and one for the international community as well as uh, financial institutions. What are the key points of what you're asking of them? One, we feel that the government of South Sudan should immediately close NSS detention centers and release people who have not been given a fair trial. And we believe that there needs to be an objective and immediate um, investigation into all accusations of NSS misconduct. And then for the U.S., U.K., um, EU, Canada, and Australia, we feel that there should be an investigation and then they should impose coordinated and targeted network sanctions on the individuals and entities that we mentioned in the report. Lastly, we ask that financial institutions should identify accounts held by or that benefit the members of the NSS or other um, 
politically exposed South Sudanese people. And then they should carry out a comprehensive assessment to identify the kind of broader international networks that I mentioned. That was Century researcher Lali Akmen. She was speaking with viewers Nabil Biagio. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Thursday, December 8th. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Over 3.5 million children in Kenya will not be in class when schools reopen in January due to drought. This, according to a report by the organization Save the Children. It says a study by the Global Out of School Children Initiative shows that there are more than 2 million children between 4 to 17 years old that have been out of school since 2021. At the same time, the government of Kenya has abolished primary school boarding schools, which they say denies children an opportunity to connect with their parents. Maureen Ojiambo reports. Kenya's National Disaster Management Authority projects that an additional 1.6 million children are at high risk of dropping out of school when classes begin again next year and as hunger crisis worsen. A report conducted by the authority says areas in arid and semi-arid regions of the country are the most affected. A survey by Save the Children in June on the impact of the drought in 17 counties showed a significant decrease in school enrollment. 52% of the schools in the study showed the drop in attendance affected early childhood, primary and secondary education. The survey attributed the drop to inadequate or lack of school meals and teachers, poor learning environments and infrastructure, resource-based conflicts and climate-related emergencies. David Tumwesije is the global advocacy manager at Save the Children. So Save the Children is really passionate about ensuring that children's rights are front and center of what we do. We uh, consider ourselves a child rights organization and anything such as the hunger or the climate crisis that affects children is very dear to us. And so we've been talking and working with colleagues in the region, um, including the World Bank, uh, UNICEF and WFP, on how to respond to this interconnected crisis. In northern Kenya, where drought is severe, many parents are not able to pay school fees as the majority have lost their source of livelihood. Their school-going children are forced to stay at home to help their parents take care of livestock and carry out other domestic chores. The message says more than 116 million children in eastern and southern Africa are affected by both conflict, hunger and climate change. So we recently launched a report which actually was anchored into consultations with over 50,000 children globally uh, to discuss how they are being impacted by the climate and inequality crisis. And of course, for the Horn of Africa, this was very relevant because within the Horn of Africa, several countries are struggling with the climate challenge. Serve the Children says every minute that goes by means more children's lives are increasingly at risk. Many are missing out on education, leaving them more disadvantaged. On the other hand, the government of Kenya has banned primary school boarding schools from January next year. It's a move that will affect thousands of children. 
Kenya's Education Principal Secretary Belio Kipsang says that parents who send their children between 4 to 14 years of age to boarding schools are failing to take responsibility for raising their own children. And the first nine years of our learning between grade 1 and grade 9, the direction that government will be taking is day schooling. You know, this country is one of the rare countries where 28% of our children are in boarding schools. Globally, rarely will you get any country that goes beyond 15%. So we need to start socializing ourselves that we need to be with our children. And the only way we shall be with our children is uh, is for these children to be in their school environment. The move has elicited a lot of reactions from Kenyans, particularly parents and school owners who have been caught unaware barely six weeks to school reopening. Meanwhile, Save the Children is calling on the government to ensure the efficient management of school feeding programs during the drought as most children depend on them. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Giambo in Sacramento, California. Cameroon's military has taken over the construction of roads linking the troubled western regions to Nigeria after what it says were repeated separatist attacks. The military says the rebels abducted eight people this week, including road workers who were abandoning work due to insecurity. Moki Edwin Kinzika reports from Yaoundé, Cameroon. Cameroon says scores of government troops and road construction equipment of its military engineering corps are moving from Yaoundé to at least six western towns and villages on the border with Nigeria. The equipment that departed the capital Tuesday includes loaders, bulldozers, dump trucks and compactors, the military says. Defense Minister Joseph Betty Asomo told Parliament this week that President Paul Beer ordered the military engineering corps to take over construction of the road linking the Kumba and Ekondotiti districts. Asomu said a majority of civilian road construction engineers abandoned work following repeated armed attacks and destruction of equipment by separatist fighters. He says army forces are capable of taking over the work. Asomu says besides its regular participation in combat operations, Forces of Cameroon's military engineering corps are trained and have a wide range of experience in constructing public edifices, including buildings and roads. He says only Cameroon's president, Paul Bia, who is commander-in-chief of the armed forces, authorizes the military to construct roads in areas deemed necessary or where there are armed conflicts. The road is part of the government's efforts to reconstruct the western areas devastated by the separatist conflict that has claimed 3,500 lives and displaced 750,000 people. The government says eight civilians, including road construction workers, were abducted by separatist fighters from a bush on Monday in Ekondotiti. Separatists have claimed responsibility for the abductions but have not made any request for ransom as is usually the case when workers are kidnapped in Cameroon's western regions. Mokete Ekoko is a traditional ruler in Kumba. He says when constructed, the road will increase trade between Cameroon and a market of 180 million people in Nigeria 
and reduce poverty in border towns and villages. He says he is happy that the military is taking over the construction of the road. This is the most important project for the time being to take us to the next stage. And that's why we, the chiefs, we take it so importantly. We take it so seriously and we want the authorities to know that we are thankful. The Cameroon military says civilians should denounce fighters hiding in the community and harassing civilians. The military says it will assure the safety of people and property in the area and complete the 60-kilometer road in less than three months. Moki Edwin Kinzuka for VOA News, Yawundi, Cameroon. And that's it for this Thursday, December 8th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for being our guest this morning. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Street Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I am James Botti in Washington saying, have a great day.